electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Front and center this hour, an exclusive interview with Bond King Jeffrey Gundlach. That's moments away. And as stocks hover near record highs, we'll debate where your money is heading from here with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Tiffany McGee, Josh Brown, John Ajeri, and Jim Labenthal. Double lines, Jeffrey Gunlock, as I said here in just a few moments, let's show you what stocks are doing. Well, the Dow has gone positive, but otherwise the S&P and the NASDAQ are in negative territory right as we speak. There is the 10-year note yield. It is at 132, was a little bit lower than that. Not too long ago, as the Fed chair taking Capitol Hill for the second day, yields, as I said, falling, investors reacting to a lot today, including more bank earnings. Josh Brown, I go to you. So we go 131 was the low today on the 10 year. Breath hasn't been great of late. Um, ARC stocks not doing well at all. What's your focus today? Yeah, there's there's no bounce in those arc names. It's something that I've been watching and and uh, talking about here on the network. I think markets overall, though, are pretty calm today. Very quietly, healthcare is advancing. One of the stronger sectors may have something to do with that appropriations bill. Uh, banks seem pretty good today. I'm looking at Discover Financial, DFS, and Capital One, two credit card names. They seem to be getting their mojo back. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are the two best of the large banks. Transports are acting better, too. I think there's a good risk return from the long side here. Those stocks have taken a couple of steps back, but they seem to have found support. Industrials are better than materials. Materials are better than energy. That's very short term. But look at the leaders. Honeywell is right at an all-time high. Apple, another all-time high. Target, how about this? 74th day in a row, new record high. So, yeah, we could focus on some of the more speculative names in the ARC portfolio. Um, but, A, they're not that big other than Tesla. And, B, I don't think the overall averages are really taking their cue from those names. I think bigger picture, we've talked about this, it's the quality names um, that seem to be holding up the best. They may correct and follow some of these other sectors. That's always possible, but that hasn't happened yet. So breadth is a negative, but the leadership is still extremely strong. And I choose to focus on that because I'm a glasses half full kind of guy. I hear you. But, look, you know, Kathy Wood's talking about a, a risk off environment. Tiffany, um, this is your wheelhouse. And I mention every time we talk about the ARC stocks and you're on the show, I, I have to go to you. Um, because you're right in the epicenter of all of this, whether it's Peloton today, which you own, or Square, which you own, Tesla or Twitter, they're all in there. I'm wondering what you make of the fact that these stocks in the ARC funds have had a real big problem of late. 
Yeah, so I think that you can't paint all of these stocks with one broad brush, right? And so, yes, they are in the ARC funds, um, and we do, you, you know I like my innovation, and I certainly like my tech, um, but I like all of those different names for different reasons. And again, I keep getting back to, um, you know, the, the idea that, you know, at our firm, we are long-term investors. So what an individual name does over a day, a week, a month, um, even a few months, we're less concerned about. We are concerned about the direction, um, but we have conviction around each of those names. You mentioned Peloton. You mentioned uh, Square. Um, I don't know if you mentioned Tesla, but certainly Tesla I is a, a huge, yeah, a, a huge part of um, of uh, Arc. And so we have different stories for each of those names. So you know, we can look at Square, and we can look at the fact that. You know, um, we, we we think that Square is well positioned for this, you know, insurgent of you know digital um, tra- transactions that, that that we're in right now, and that it's going to be definitely, certainly important to the future. Um, we look at Peloton. We still own Peloton. Um, we're not buying it right now. Kathy clearly still owns it, but we do like Peloton long term. There's a lot of dust that needs to be settled in this reopen um, phase that we're in. Right, every week we get more reopen. Yeah. Um, uh, into that, but we like each of those individual names for, for each of those reasons. I'm looking at the one-year number, right? So today, a year back, or yesterday, a year back, and all of those numbers are still positive. So for us, on each of those names that, that you mentioned, so for us, we're still good. Look, about Peloton specifically, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you zeroed in on that because I wanted to as well. Um, it was reiterated sell today over at UBS Tiff, the price target remains at 74. They say the company's penetration of the total addressable market is approximately 3% today. That's up from 1.5% in 2020, so that's a double, and three quarters of 1% in 2019. The growth of the company has been undeniable, but they're wondering whether it is a has been great story that is going to be much more difficult to duplicate. They say that the current estimates on the street assume more than tripling of the penetration rate by 2025. Is that too optimistic for a name like this as you see it down today, as you see it reiterated sell at UBS? Yes, yeah, so I am not really concerned about analyst price targets. I want to know about the direction. That's what I'm concerned about. Listen, it's it's uh, you know an analyst's job to to set price targets, and when you know th- those uh, when those are either hit or not no, hit, this isn't it's a, their I job know. to change them. It's not a growth. This, I mean, we're not talking but, about the price target. I don't care about the seventy-four dollars. What I care about is the fact that they say that estimates are just way too aggressive for the growth trajectory of a company that has already grown a lot. And now we're coming out of a pandemic in which people want to be at the gym, right? We had two guests on Squawk on the Street this morning, a company going public, Mark Wahlberg included in that, talking about being at a facility around other people. Yes. Yeah, so I do think that there are still people that will buy a Peloton. There are still people that will continue to subscribe to the Peloton. When you buy the Peloton, you have to subscribe, right? That's that's kind of like the whole uh, the whole point of it. So I do think that there is still room. Um, you cut off for a second um, when you were speaking, uh, um, uh, Scott, but I think that you said um, the, the analysts reported about like 3% um, penetration in, in the industrial market. I think so. I think that there is absolutely room to grow. Yes. I'm getting back to the fact that I'm saying, you know, we have to wait for this dust to settle because we're still in this, you know, um, excitement of reopening and being in person. But at the end of the day, when it's raining outside, I don't want to go outside. I want to go upstairs and get on my Peloton and do a class with 10,000 people. 
Yeah, I mean, this company he, makes tread. This company makes treadmills, and it's trading at nine times yeah. sales, 130 times earnings. We all agree there's room to grow. I think we also all agree that 2020 might have been the best year in the company's history when we look back even 20 years from now. Like, unless you tell me there's another uh, pandemic on the horizon in the next two or three years, I can't imagine them ever being able to post growth numbers the way that they have historically. And I think that makes it very, very challenging to stay long a stock that, from a technical analysis perspective, looks like um, the quintessential falling knife. So my question is, when would you say, yeah, I, you know what, I changed my mind, I'm wrong? What would have to happen? So, again, so we are holding it for the long term. But I, I, I do agree with you, Josh. Like, we're not expecting the numbers of last year. Absolutely not. Definitely the pandemic um, gave it a huge, huge, huge boost. What I'm saying is that I'm not completely selling out of it. We still like it. Um, also, when we rebalance, we have a very disciplined rebalancing strategy. When we rebalance, we look for specific names that we want to shave off a little bit. We have not shaved off Peloton, but that would be one of the names that, you know, we're, we're again, we're still looking at the numbers every single quarter. We're looking at um, the penetration. We're looking at, um, you know, what what are um, what are those increases or, or are there increases in um in uh, users, in subscriptions, all of those things we're paying very close attention to. If that starts to really, really trend down over a period of time, then we'll have to take another look. But we're not we're most likely not going to sell completely out of it. But we are trimming. when, um, Whenever we, we, we rebalance, we're paying attention to those names like a Peloton, right, completely different from a square um, that, that, that has the potential to possibly, um, you know, uh, have, have, have like a little bit right. of more um, volatility going forward. So, Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, but look, the, these, these stocks are front and center in the conversation of, you know, stocks that had a, a fair amount of multiple jump, whether they deserved at one point to trade at the multiple they do and whether they deserve a re-rating now. Because it's just a different environment and the growth rate for these types of businesses is not going to be uh, as it was. And as Josh said, it may never be again. And that doesn't mean that the stock price may change immediately, but it certainly means that it could over the longer term. Uh, John Nigerian, let me go to you. I mean, this this narrowing Mm -hmm. breadth of of the market um, where the large cap tech stocks are the one pulling the weight again. Now you've got the ARC stocks down, you know, eight of nine or nine of 10 or whatever it is days. Are you concerned about that? Mm -hmm. No, I'm not, Scott. Um, And the the fact that I I guess I have exposure to some of the ARC stocks, um, but Apple's been doing such great work, and that is the heaviest weight in my portfolio. Uh, I've been very pleased with that. I loved yesterday when they basically, when that news came out about uh, that they told their suppliers to be ready for another 20% plus uh, it, because of the demand might be close to 90 million iPhones um, in this next quarter. That's an astounding number. And obviously, that's one of the reasons that I've been holding the stock and believing in it. But um, when I'm looking around right now, Scott, today at what we're trading, trading a lot of AMC. It was down 40% in the last, uh, just like you're saying, Kathy Woodstock's eight of nine days. This one was down 40% in eight days. Today, it traded down to 32 and then snapped. That was on the opening, snapped all the way back to 37, which is a monstrous move for a $30 stock. So obviously, some folks focused there. They're also focused on Chinese EVs and Chinese solar, Uh, perhaps very related, those two. 
but XPEV, NEO, Lee, those are a couple of the uh, stocks in the EV space. And then uh, Jinko Solar and a bunch of the other uh, solar names, but specific to China, which is really odd, Scott, that you're not seeing the same out of Canada or U.S. solar stocks as you are out of the Chinese solar stocks. So I found that really interesting today when I was trading. And uh, like I say, I don't really know why, but uh, I don't always question why I just trade the momentum. Yeah, yeah. Hey, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Um, you know, yes, Jim, sir. I don't have that much time either because we are uh, waiting on our uh, exclusive interview with Jeffrey Gunlock. But, Jim, what I want to do with you, I want to bring in Steve Weiss on the phone. And I want to have a conversation about a stock that he just sold. I know you guys have joked about it, and I know you've tweeted at each other about it in, in a joking sort of way. But, Steve Weiss, you're on the phone now. You sold Boeing after sort of intimating that you were getting fed up with the, the delays and all of the issues now around the Dreamliner. You want to tell us why you sold Boeing? Sure. So I went into Boeing as a trade it, uh, because of my view on management, David Calhoun, uh, who was at GE Aerospace, but of course we don't know really how they did there. I just thought he's done a, a terrible job managing the company. Uh, as chairman of the board, before what happened with the Max happened, he was uh, he was major overseer of the company. So I went to as a trade, not a long term thing, and then. You know, I kept trying to make excuses, but at the end of the day, I've got an aversion to being waterboarded. And this company has just continued to trade down mistake after mistake. And it's not just people who cited the fact that it's not just the negative metrics of 2020. It started in 2019 where they were losing money, where cash flow turned negative. And their debt, their long-term debt, has gone from $10 billion to $60 billion. So it's a completely different company than it was. You've got Airbus that's picking up share. You've got China, which is manufacturing their own. So, yeah, it may go up. The fact that I sold it, maybe that provides a lift to it for Jim. But the trade turned into a quasi-investment, and that's one mistake you should never do. So I've lost more money in the stock between the max issue and and this than, than I can recall, even though it was a small trading position. So I'm not that crazy about the market either. So I've been getting rid of certain positions that I'm not fully committed to and putting my capital in both into cash and to others that I like. But I just think this is a bad investment going forward. OK, so, so Jim Labenthal, you know, how how would you respond to that? Um, and like minded investors or traders, whoever who are watching our program and take the ad advice that you guys give seriously. What, what do you say to Steve Weiss's concerns? Yeah. He may represent other people watching the show, yeah. too. Right. And I'm, I'm going to stay consistent on my message, which is I think it's a very good investment. I don't think it's a very good trading vehicle, and I've never tried to trade it. I don't recommend anybody try to trade it. But the reason I say it's a good investment is these are the facts. Air traffic is picking up globally, and it's picking up rapidly. At the same time, you've got fuel oil prices that are very high. That places the demand for new planes, which you're seeing. You're seeing it from United. You're seeing it from Ryanair. There's talk of an Air France KLM order coming out soon. There is clearly demand for new planes from Boeing and from Airbus. That's fine. It's a duopoly. That's exactly the sort of profit business you want to be in, where there is a limited number of competitors, there's high demand, and there's huge moats to competition. Now, I'm not saying that Steve is dumb or completely wrong. 
As I said two days ago to you, Scott, I'm not very happy with management, and they are out of runway as far as I'm concerned. One more misstep, and I'm calling for Mr. Calhoun's head. But I think that this is simply an economic story here. You're early in an economic expansion. You're going to see continued increase in air traffic, uh, and you're going to see continued high fuel prices. That places demand on Boeing airplanes. However, Scott, Steve, just, you're now yeah. on a no-fly list. You're, you're on a no-fly list, Steve. You've been in out of the stock so many times, my head is spinning. You're on a no-fly okay. list. You can't be on Boeing anymore. Scott, let me just answer the duopoly question, which is, which is legitimate. There have been many, many cases over the years where duopolies just don't work because the management isn't good. We saw it with Burger King and McDonald's. It wasn't until McDonald's brought new management they were able to turn it around. We saw it with Pepsi and Coke. Years and years of wars, uh, you know, price wars. These are terrible we're comparisons. Not just with, not, we're, just, we're not seeing it just with those, but we're seeing it. These, we are, have these are horrible comparisons. You're seeing where you have other you, Steve, I got to interrupt here. Like the telcos. I'm going to I'm going to have to interrupt you. I'm going to have to interrupt you both because because I'm going to get to Jeffrey Gunlock in in just a moment. We'll pick this up uh, another time. I know, Steve, thanks for calling in. But I'm up against uh, timing that I don't want to miss. And before I do that quickly, John Ajarian, do you have a quick unusual activity? I know our viewers love it. Do you have something quick you can just give us before I go to break? Um, Sure, Scott. Uh, TLT. Uh, They've been buying upside calls in TLT. Uh, This means that they believe they, uh, whoever bought 15,000 of these calls again today, that it's going to push towards 150. That means rates down because, of course, as bonds rise, rates drop. So they're saying we haven't seen the new new low for this move yet, Scott, that we're going to plumb lower as far as rates. All right. Well, you teed us up perfectly for our interview today. John, thank you for that. We're just two minutes away from our halftime exclusive interview with Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gundlach. He'll join us next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started.
Welcome back, and let's welcome in our headliner today, Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gunlock, joining us in a CNBC exclusive interview from his hometown of Buffalo, New York. Jeffrey, it's good to see you. Welcome back. It's good to see you, Scott. I thought you were coming to Buffalo. I was going to take you to Duff's for the best chicken wings in the world for lunch. I'll take, I'll take, take a, a rain check. I'll take a rain check. I'll be there at some point. I promise you that. It's good to see you. As I said, it's been a while, too. Uh, you haven't been with us in, in about six months. In fact, when you were with us on January the 11th, Jeffrey, you told me the stock market was at, quote, extraordinarily high valuations. S&P's up 15% since then, hitting new records almost every day. So where are we now? We're at extremely high valuations. Uh, what I said in January also was the one thing that's weird about it, as high as the valuation is, it's actually cheap to bonds. And that was the biggest case. The biggest case for stocks is that they're cheap to bonds. They still are cheap to bonds because the bond yield is so ridiculously low. And you also have the Fed doing their quantitative easing. And it still remains the case that there is almost a constant, so it's almost like a law of physics, that if you take the Fed's balance sheet and divide it by the uh, market cap of the S&P 500, it seems to be a constant. And this is true going back like 10 years. So the Fed continues with their uh, bond buying, and they continue to suppress interest rates, and that's been supporting the stock market. Obviously, the stimulus has been very substantial support for the stock market as well. But when you think about it, the stimulus to the consumer is really the same, sort of the same thing as the Fed's buying, uh, bond buying program, at least it's facilitated by it. So the stock market it hangs in there. Well, the problem is that we're not sure what's happening with the stimulus, and the Fed is getting, uh, it's getting difficult for the Fed to talk about this inflation situation as being temporary or transitory, as they like to say. I mean, the uh, PPI is at a huge number. Import prices came out today up 11%. We all know the CPI came up at 54 I mean, these are numbers that remind me of the 1970s. In fact, a lot of things remind me of the 1970s. You know, we just, we're just pulling out of a failed war in Afghanistan where we basically fought to a stalemate. It kind of reminds me of the 70s in Vietnam. And we, and we had guns and butter that led to inflation in the 70s and the late 60s and the 70s into the, even the early 80s. And we certainly have guns, butter, student loan cancellation, free unemployment benefits and everything else. So we're going kind of full tilt. Uh, that keeps the stock market uh, at, at high levels, also keeps commodities at high levels, and it keeps bond yields uh, suppressed at levels that are ridiculously low versus the inflation rate. It seems to me, on price action we've seen recently, that the Fed seems to want the 30-year to be capped at around 2%, which is lower than I expected. So we can talk about that if you like, but uh, well, I'll stop there for the moment. Let, let me just ask you then. I mean, you... As an investor and our viewers are forced to play the hand that you're dealt, not the hand you wish you had or the one you think should be dealt to you. So in the current environment, with the Fed engaged in the manner that it is with interest rates, the 10 year, for example, at 131 today, is it right to stay long stocks? Are stocks going to remain elevated even at what you say are increasingly high valuations as long as the game is played the way it is now? I think you're okay holding. I talked about my portfolio that I thought was a good idea to hedge against all of these risks that we have when we get into 2022. Who knows what the world's going to look like? That you would have a portfolio. I started out with 25, 25, 25, 25 stocks, long-term government bonds, gold, and cash. 
I, I altered that a few months ago to reduce the cash level and increase the stock level a little bit. Oh, interesting. Uh, but I, I, still th- I, I still think that that mix is sensible until such time as we have clarity on what's going to happen with the government stimulus. You know, it's interesting that all this uh, extra stimulus, all this free money is supposed to come to largely to an end, not all of it, but a lot of it, uh, here in just several weeks. And I just don't believe that's going to happen. I don't believe they can go cold turkey on the stimulus. Uh, the economic consequences are just too uncertain. So I don't really hear anybody talking about what they're going to do with the, the, the planned curtailment of stimulus. But I expect that to start becoming an issue fairly soon. Uh, if the, the, the issue is if the stimulus continues at the level it's at, the inflation is not going to go away. In fact, the inflation could get worse. And if they take the stimulus away, well, then the inflation probably won't get worse, but the economy is extremely uncertain at that point in time. Also, the stimulus, what's kind of comical about it, is the stimulus is obviously causing uh, consumer behavior to be elevated. And you know who benefits from the consumer behavior? What's the strongest economy in the world uh, for the 12 months ending the end of the first quarter? Well, it's China. China's benefiting tremendously from our stimulus because we still uh, buy so many goods that say made in China written on them. Uh, so that's kind of the whole, the whole question for investors, I think, is centered around what's going to happen in Washington, D.C. and in certain uh, state houses like Sacramento regarding how long this free money stimulus is going to go on. As long as it goes on, I think that the stock market can stay at kind of uh, nosebleed levels as it has been and uh, continues to kind of grind higher. It's interesting, though, in the stock market that um, it's more of a stock picker's market than we've seen in quite a long time. Many, many days you'll have one major index, like the Dow will be up, but the NASDAQ will be down, and then a few days later the opposite will happen. I mean, I think that's even happening today. I think the Dow is, is up and uh, the S&P and the NASDAQ are down. It's interesting how we don't have the same one-way everything in sync as we had uh, prior to the pandemic and even uh, shortly after the stimulus started uh, in response to the pandemic. So you don't you don't think that inflation's transitory, as as the Fed suggests, because you could also make an argument, Jeffrey, that the market, by virtue of the fact that stocks are where they are and that rates are low, that the market's giving the Fed the benefit of the doubt, that it actually believes that Jay Powell knows what he's talking about and that he's going to get it right. Do you do you think they're wrong? Um, they've already proven themselves to be wrong, at least in a minor way. They talked about transitory as being two or three months if we go back uh, to the beginning part of this year. And now transitory seems to have turned into six to nine months. And uh, it's looking like they're going to have to extend that definition of transitory. I think the Fed is start- some Fed officials are starting to admit that they think this inflation is going to stay around a little bit longer than they thought before. And so if it, if it heads into 2022, um, the Fed is going to have to start respecting. And some of the Fed officials are respecting this inflation spike. But Jay Powell is still kind of wishing, hoping, and praying, I think, that this goes away. I don't really know why inflation is, is going to be transitory if this stimulus continues. There's such a spike in demand for everything. Everybody knows about these bottlenecks, supply chain shortages, the price of lumber. Uh, the price of real estate is now getting unaffordable. We're starting to see the housing market uh, face a little bit more of a, of a, of a headwind. You know, the last time I was in Buffalo was in uh, April. And that was really the hottest moment for the real estate market. Uh, I drove around a lot uh, back in April because I got family here here and there, so I'm driving many, many miles. And back in April, I didn't see a single for sale sign, nothing. Uh, Now, as I go walk around just my neighborhood, 
There's for sale signs everywhere, and I think that's because the prices are up so much. So if we continue the stimulus, we're going to continue the inflation. The stimulus equals inflation. For inflation to be transitory, stimulus has to be transitory. So this, this is kind of this weird, um, we're kind of playing a chess game. The bond market seems to be thinking that the Fed is, is going to like, uh, get, get religion about this inflation, do something about it, and taper and do other things that's going to soften the economy. And that, or, or else the Fed is just, they're, they're buying a loan, which is absorbing uh, virtually all the supply of treasury bonds. Uh, it, this is suppressing the yields. So, so the bond market is not really believing the inflation right now, which is very, very interesting because it suggests that they think the Fed is going to get more serious about inflation not being transitory. So it's odd, when the CPI comes out hot, the bond market doesn't go down. The bond market actually is stable or higher. Uh, and that's obviously because the bond market is thinking one move ahead in the chess game that the Fed may actually have to start doing something about seriously reducing these bond buying programs and maybe even, God forbid, start raising short-term interest rates, which I don't really hear people whisp even whispering about right now. But the short end of the bond market has been going up uh, in yield, and it had been anchored completely. I mean, the two-year uh, was absolutely anchored. The three-year was very near the two-year, and now we're starting to see the curve flatten a little bit. Um, there's logic that says that the flattening of the yield curve might have been due to offsides positioning. Everybody and their brother thought the yield curve was going to uh, steepen out earlier this year, and everybody was right. The yield curve did steepen out. Uh, then that trade got incredibly crowded, and uh, then inflation actually started to show up. Uh, so the, the bond market was saying, hey, inflation might, uh, is going to pick up in the middle of the year, and it did, and that steepened the curve, and now the curve is actually flattening, not just with long rates coming down, but also with shorter rates going up a little bit. So the bond market is starting to believe, perhaps, that we're getting closer to the end of these extraordinary programs. And that's going to be very, very interesting uh, for financial markets and will probably stop this one-way trade of everything. Um, mean, meanwhile, I want to talk a little bit about the dollar. Uh, the dollar has been reasonably strong. We uh, turned positive on the dollar, below 90 on the Dixie, looking for it to go up to about 94. And it's very strange that it's, it's actually happening exactly that way, but it's because, similar to the short rates rising, I think the dollar is sensing the fact that these extraordinary policies may be ending. But ultimately, the size of our deficits, both trade deficit, which has exploded uh, post-pandemic, and the budget deficit, which is obviously completely off the charts, suggest that in the intermediate term, I don't really think this year exactly, but in the intermediate term, the dollar is going to fall pretty substantially. And that's going to be a very uh, 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 important dynamic, okay. because one of the things that has helped the bond market, without any doubt, has been foreign buying uh, with the interest rate differentials having favored uh, hedged uh, U.S. bond positions for foreign bond investors. I mean, because you said, in fact, it was just last month when you said that the dollar should be falling over the medium and, and long term. And as you just noted, it's been kind of doing the opposite. And if inflation expectations are going to go up, and if the Fed actually does start talking about tapering in some meaningful way and gets closer to that finish line as you get closer to, you know, Jackson Hole, for example, won't the dollar continue to go up in, in the medium term? I've been, I've been predicting a higher dollar for the last few months. When it was below about 89, we, we announced very publicly that we were positive on the dollar for the near term. It's, it's a question of what your horizon is. In the near term, the dollar seems firm. 
And, for, and the reasons that you just articulated support that idea. In the longer term, I think the dollar, uh, I, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I think it's, I, I will use the word doomed in, in the long term. Um, I, I think in the short term, the dynamics are, are, have been and will continue to be in place for the dollar to be marginally or moderately stronger. Um, what's interesting about that is as the dollar has firmed, commodity prices have been a little bit volatile, but they're very, very close to their highs on the Bloomberg Commodity Index. We have what could be a quadruple top, or it could be that commodities are about to yet break out again on the upside. My guess is that commodities will not break out on the upside. The move has been so linear and so uh, persistent, and the dollar, as you suggested and, and correctly pointed out, Scott, has been moderately firmer in the last several weeks, and I think that's going to continue. And that would mean that commodity prices should probably be faded at this time. Uh, interestingly, gold is actually negative this year. Commodities are very, very strong. I mean, commodities are up more than stocks this year uh, as a basket on, like, the BCOM on a year-to-date basis. But the, the gold uh, just can't seem to get out of its own way. And obviously, the dollar being firmer uh, lately is not a positive for gold mm -hmm. either. Why, let me ask you this. Why are yields where they are? Is it as simple as all of the liquidity in the system is just depressing yields c continuously and globally? Are, are, should we be thinking about Delta variant in terms of, of yield? Should we be thinking about where the economy really is or whether this is as good as it gets? What, what, how do you answer that question when people ask you that? Why are yields this low? Yields are this low because of all the liquidity in the system. Uh, there's so much money that's out there. Banks are so flush with deposits. We see all these weird dislocations in the repo markets and stuff because of all of this, uh, all this liquidity. We saw banks earlier this year were so desperate to do something with their, uh, all their excess deposits. They were buying massive amounts of mortgage-backed securities because, you know, there's regulations that banks have to have certain credit quality of the assets that they buy. We got to a point earlier this year, uh, it's actually a few months ago now, where some of the government-guaranteed mortgage-backed securities were yielding less than treasuries on an actual carry basis, looking at what, what your cash flows you were receiving from the mortgage-backed securities were less than the same maturity tenure. It was shocking. I, I think I've only seen that maybe once before in my entire career. And that was because, I think, because of all this bank buying. I think we also have a lot of foreign uh, buying. Uh, if you take the, uh, treasuries or certainly corporate bonds, if you're Japanese or European investor and you hedge your currency risk back into dollars, so you're really just owning the yield and you've hedged it back, at least for the short term, into your own currency, there's a pretty big pickup. And foreign buying had been non-existent. In fact, foreigners have been liquidating U.S. Treasury bonds for, for years. In fact, it accelerated quite a bit uh, until several months ago, and now the foreigners are back. Also, I think bond yields got very low uh, right as we started uh, July, because of quarter-end rebalancing. Bonds had been negative returners for a year to date, and stocks, as you pointed out correctly, were up. And so pension plans often rebalance at quarter-end, and also uh, June 30th, for many pension plans, can be their fiscal year-end. So that's uh, further motivating to maybe rebalance. Uh, so th that's, that's been going on as well. So uh, there, there's a lot of factors that are just kind of, uh, well, well, there's one other factor from the pension plans that I should mention, and that is, as was reported uh, fairly visibly in the press, many uh, pension plans have actually reached some of their best funding status since prior to the global financial crisis back over 10, 15 years ago. 
And so there's motivation for pension plans if they get to a fully funded status to just lock it in. And they can do that by buying long dated bonds. Now, it, it's, it seems sort of strange that you're locking in such a low yield, but they're, they're motivated by other considerations. When you are running a pension plan and you experience multiple bear markets where the stock market goes down 30 40% several times over you know, global financial crisis and subsequently, they want to avoid that bad feeling that they get when they go from a good funding status to a bad one. I think pension plans have been a, a source of demand for longer dated bonds as well. But when you look at real interest rates on long dated treasuries, it looks like Jimmy Carter era. I mean, we're, we're talking about you know, the CPI at 5.4, and if we want to use the 10-year treasury, it's not even at 1.4. That's a negative 4% interest rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's Jimmy Carter-esque. And so the bond market doesn't really, it doesn't look, it doesn't look cheap versus stocks. It doesn't look cheap versus inflation. But there are motivations that can be accounting-related even for people to buy. I don't think there's a lot of people that are taxable retail investors that are, on a long-term basis, uh, motivated to run out there and buy these, these, negative, these negative-yielding bonds mm-hmm. versus inflation. But the supply-demand picture, don't forget the Fed's been a big buyer as well. So banks, foreigners, pension plans, uh, all of these things have been one of the reasons why rates are low. And, of course, the Fed, is key. the Fed does have absolute iron-fisted control over short-term interest rates, and they have been diehard in their commitment to leaving short-term interest rates at zero. I mean, I think they borrowed that language from me, actually, from your show, <laughs> uh, Judge, where I said the Fed isn't even thinking about thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. And, and they actually... Uh, they actually borrowed that language, but they've, they've, they're starting to back away from it. You know, one layer of the onion at a time, getting back to, you know, we've got to start respecting this inflation data at some point. Right. I, I think, you know, I think a five handle on the CPI is sort of shocking, and I think a nine handle on the PPI is truly shocking. And, you know, if we get even two more months of this type of data, it's, it's going to necessitate a reality check by the Fed. We will talk more about that after this quick break. We'll be right back with Double Line CEO Jeffrey Gundlach in our halftime exclusive. Two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says that all Republican senators will vote against the Democrats' $3.5 trillion spending bill. McConnell making those comments to Fox News. CVS says that it's halting sales of two of its sunburn products. This following Johnson & Johnson's recall of some aerosol sunscreens. CVS says that it's acting out of an abundance of caution. And Russia confirmed COVID deaths hitting a record for the third day in a row. Officials are reporting that the pandemic death toll went up by 791 today. New COVID cases are near their highest level of the year. 
And some of the suspects arrested for the assassination of Haiti's president may have previously received training from the U.S. military. The Washington Post reporting that some former Colombian soldiers got the training while still part of the Colombian armed forces. And new questions on U.S. connections to the assassination. And did the Haitian president's security detail have a part in the plot? All that tonight on the news at 7 p.m. Eastern. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate that very much, Rahel Solomon. Back with Jeffrey Gundlach, the Double Line CEO, in our halftime exclusive interview today. I want to follow with you, Jeffrey, on something you said a short time ago. You said, and I want to make sure I heard this correctly, that you don't see upside, much upside ahead for commodities. Um, How does that square with your view that you think inflation is, is here to stay? And if that's not where the inflation is going to come from, is it simply in wage inflation that has you the most concerned? How, how do we square all of that? Yeah, uh, commodities were so strong from basically a year ago, June or so, in a linear basis. The, 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 the magnitude of the move is so extreme that it's hard for me to believe that it can continue with the dollar being as strong as it is. So you do raise a good point. I mean, some of the reason that we have the PPI, for example, so high is because of the already baked in the cake commodity price increases that have already occurred. I think if commodities stay even stable or even drop a little bit, it's still an absolute level that is going to percolate through the system. But the point that you're bringing up on wage inflation is absolutely key. I mean, what we have is everybody knows about this situation, that the people can't get workers. I've been traveling all over the country uh, over the past year. And everywhere I go, and I'm sure this anecdote is very common, uh, everywhere I go, I talk to people at all levels of business, and everybody says the same thing. They can't get workers. You know, restaurants can't hire people and so on. I, was at, I went out to dinner the other day, and the service was terrible. It's because the waiter, there was one seasoned waiter, and they had one other waiter, and he's a trainee. And this is the case all over the place. And the only way you're going to be able to get workers if this government stimulus stays in place, even in part, which I do believe it will, I don't think we're going to go to cold turkey, is you're going to have to pay people more. And wage inflation, I think, is, pretty, is, is, is really a variable that could help to continue to drive inflation. And wage inflation, really, uh, it's, it's hard to slow down once it gets stopped. I mean, I, I talked about how this is kind of like the 70s a little bit. One thing that gets inflation going is inflation expectations where people start to buy now as opposed to uh, delaying purchases because they're relaxed about the outlook for prices in the future. We've seen data on inventories, for example, where people are starting to get away from just-in-time inventories. They got burned on that during the pandemic. Well, they're at five-year lows. So we're starting to get... Right? Inventories, five-year lows. Right. And so that's a source of inflation. If people want to start restocking their inventories and have a new attitude that you'd mentioned the Delta variant, maybe, maybe I'm going to have to deal with you know, uh, supply chain problems longer than I thought if I'm a business manager, and maybe I need to bulk up those record low inventories. And if everybody starts to think with that mentality, that starts to make inflation take hold. I am old enough, uh, I guess I'll say fortunately, to have <laughs> lived through the inflation and the psychology of the inflation from the 70s, and people start to actually believe that prices and perhaps wages can be part of that are going to increase. And if that's the case, you start to see it becoming sort of a a momentum phenomenon. And I don't think we're there yet, but if we're going to keep going on with uh, this this situation where there's all these people that are being paid more not to work than to work, 
ultimately, business is going to have to compete with the government. And that could be a source of further uh, higher wage inflation, at least at the low end level, which I think is where this is obviously the, mm-hmm. the, the vortex of this issue. Uh, that, 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 could, that could be a case. So, um, yeah, I, I, just, I just think it, it was only three months ago that the forecast was that inflation was going to peak out on a transitory basis in the high threes, Judge. You remember that? That wasn't a long time ago. That was that was like three months ago. Right. People felt that. Which the Fed admits. And here we are at five point yeah. four. Which on, the Fed admits that ahead. it would undershot. It's it, it's 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 shocking, actually, that 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 uh, people don't have uh, kind of bulging eyes at what's happened on these CPI reports. I mean, we, they expect point four. It comes out at point eight. They expect point five. It comes out at point nine. I mean, inflation for the last three months annualized is at ten point two percent. On the headline CPI, this is this is not this is not trivial, and so I, I, I think the base case has to be you know there's an old saying in in the markets, and I think relative to this, these inflation data, I think it's applicable. There's an old saying that the trend is your friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've been saying every time you know CPI is going to come out to, uh, in a few days. Uh, I, I, in our macro meetings uh, that we have at Double Line, of course, virtually still, since we're not back to the office yet in California, it's sort of like, you know, I'm going to take the over. <laughs> Whatever your guess is on the CPI, I'm taking the over. And I'm going to say that again for the next print. So uh, it is, it is uh, unusual. Uh, it's tra- it's trans- what transitory means, nobody knows. It's another one of these uh, lexicon uh, invented terms by the Fed. Everything's transitory. Everything and everything's transitory. Just a question of how long of a time frame you define transitory to be. Sure. But inflation right now is not decelerating; it's accelerating right now. And until it, I'm going to, I'm going to go with the trend is your friend until there's some evidence to the contrary. Uh, you know what? And 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 maybe that is um, uh, the headline that people are going to take away from this. Is certainly one of them, Jeffrey, and relate it to what you said about stocks that relative to bonds. Stocks are still the place to be, that they're still cheap. The trend has been your friend to, to you, mostly be in stocks. I'm curious, though, is what, what, when you look at SPACs and NFTs and meme stocks, we don't even talk about NFTs much anymore, but SPACs and, and meme stocks, what do you take away from all of that? It's all part of this speculative mania that has been fueled by uh, repeated rounds of stimulus. The first rounds of stimulus people saved a little bit or paid down their credit card debt. The most recent round of stimulus went into speculation and spending. Uh, So if stimulus continues, it's going to go into speculation and spending. The reason I've been saying that stocks are cheap to bonds is one very simplistic comparison. It's just the yield on, say, the 10-year Treasury Mm -hmm. compared to the, the inverse of the price-earnings ratio on stocks, which is sort of the yield on stocks. And the yield on it versus bonds at today's levels, stocks are below average in terms of their valuation versus bonds. They're actually cheaper than average, in spite of the fact that they're so very high on so many measures. Uh, that, uh, that, uh, they're not as high as they were because earnings have delivered, but, they, but they're very, very high on, on most metrics in the, in the stock market, but they're cheap, mm-hmm. to, they're cheap to bonds on that yield basis. Let me let me do this. I, I think you can still hear me. I'm, I'm pretty sure you can. Josh Brown has a I, question. I got you. Josh Brown, you. you know, in trying to give people advice on on where to invest and, and what to buy, what to look away from. Josh Brown has a question for you, Jeffrey. And then I want to talk to you about where you are today 
uh, in your hometown. And we'll get to that in a second. But Josh Brown has a question for you. Right. Hey, Jeff, I want to ask you, I want to, piv- I want to pivot from, it's great to see you, by the way. I want to pivot from uh, the macro stuff and, and ask an asset allocation question. Your uh, double line total return flagship fund is one of the most popular uh, total return bond funds with financial advisors like myself. And I think a lot of people who work in my side of the industry would love to hear your answer to this. Over the last five years, um, we've seen double-line total return do a little bit less than 3% annualized per year, which is in line with the Barclays Ag. It hasn't been a great environment for that asset class, that type of fund. Can you make the case for why you think the next, let's say, three to five years uh, would be a better environment? Uh, Because if we think inflation is less than transitory and that we might have to live with higher prices for longer than the Fed thinks... 3% 3% ain't going to cut it for most investors. Like, how does a total return bond fund earn a slot in a portfolio built for a client by a financial advisor? What would be, what would be your answer to that? Well, I think one of the benefits of some type of total return bond funds is that they don't have as much interest rate risk as the bond market broadly. The bond market, the Barclays Ag, as you point out, or the Bloomberg Barclays Ag, as it's called now, has a has sort of a record amount of interest rate risk. So it's it's basically like a seven-year maturity type of interest rate risk. And the yield is so low that, well, just look at year to date. I mean, the return on uh, the Barclays uh, index fund uh, type of bond investment is negative. Uh, we're, We're positive year to date because we have lower interest rate risk. Now, one thing that's driven high returns from uh, the bond market broadly, particularly over the past 16 months, has been corporate bonds, which got beat up very badly uh, for about a week uh, until the Fed came to the rescue uh, and propped up the corporate bond market. Right now, the corporate bond market is the most overvalued that it's been in 20 years. Uh, The spread that you get on corporate bonds versus treasuries is very, very low by historical standards. But it's even worse than that if you look under the hood, because the maturity of the corporate bond market, this is the investment-grade corporate bond market I'm talking about, is, has never been higher. The interest rate risk is that of a 10-year treasury, so it's higher than the bond market risk. Also, the credit quality of the investment-grade corporate bond market has been deteriorating constantly, and so it's among the worst credit quality it's ever been, and yet it's at one of the lowest yields on a spread basis it's ever been. If you adjust for maturity and credit quality uh, evolution over the past 20 years, the corporate bond market is 13 basis points uh, tighter than it's ever been before versus treasury. So your yield on that is, is pitiful because you're talking about a 10-year treasury at about 1.3 and you tack on about 80 basis points for corporate bonds. So you're talking about 2.1%. And uh, so that's not even the 3% that you're talking about. So what you want to do in bonds is you want to get short maturities that have some yield spread on it. And that's in the non-corporate bond market. It's in the places that got beat up due to COVID and have largely recovered, but not entirely. Um, there's been is a monumental recovery. In, if, you go to, if you go to some commercial, some commercial mortgage-backed securities, you've got to go down to like triple B, double B levels. Same thing in bank loans, same thing in CLOs, same thing. Asset-backed securities are probably the best, but they're very hard to source because they're short maturity and there's still some distress that is lingering 
in parts of the asset-backed securities market, like aircraft-driven and the like, which is which is very vulnerable still to international travel not having recovered. Mm -hmm. International uh, travel recovering would be a very big game changer for that part of the market. So there have been some big gains in bonds this year, but they're all in these areas that were decimated by the pandemic. Um, We have an income fund, for example, that's up nearly 6% year to date. Um, that's just because it's in, invested in those types of things. Mm. So you have to be very, just like I said earlier, it's a stock picker's market, I think, in the equity market. It's a sector picker's market, more than it's been in a long time. It's very much an asset picker's market in the bond market. An index fund, I'll, I'll repeat your phrase, Josh, you're absolutely right, it ain't going to cut it. Yeah. Let, let me, um, in, the, in the time that we have left, and our time always goes too fast, Jeffrey, when, when we speak, um, you are leading the charge, and I want to talk to you about where you are today, and I'm sorry I'm not there in person to see it with you, but you're leading the expansion of the Albright-Knox Museum up, up in Buffalo, the Art Museum. You are the anchor donor. You've uh, given $65 million of your own money. You've helped raise more than $100 million uh, otherwise as well. Can you tell us about this project that's scheduled to open, I think, next year? Yes, um, we're scheduled to open a little more than a year from now, and we've got the steel built for the new building, the North Building, which I'm honored to have my name on it. Um, not that I really care that much, but uh, it's great to have the name Buffalo showing up in the museum. We're changing the name to the Buffalo Art Museum. We're saying call it the Buffalo AKG. A is for Albright, who started the, uh, who gave the museum a permanent home in 1905. We're restoring that building. Uh, which is very expensive to do, to restore a building from 1905. And then uh, Mr. Knox, Seymour Knox Jr., uh, built the 1962 building and created one of the most important contemporary modern post-war art collections in the world. Most people aren't aware that uh, Buffalo has one of the best art museums, particularly for modern art and post-modern, post-war art, in the world. And it's very uh, contemporary art-oriented as well. And the, the museum was only able to show about 2 or 3% of its holdings due to lack of space. And so we're more than doubling the space of the museum. Um, the museum has about 600 uh, pieces that are true masterpieces, masterpieces by anybody's definition that any museum in the world would want to have. The, the best Jackson Pollock paintings, Warhols, Clifford Still that most people need to appreciate. Um, It goes on and on. Manet, Monet, Van Gogh, Giacometti, uh, you name it. Uh, It's not a a deep collection, but the quality is breathtaking. And Buffalo uh, has this jewel that has been needed to be polished and and improved upon and to open it up for uh, the world to see. So I think Buffalo is going to see a lot of further growth. Buffalo is a booming city. It's greatly underappreciated. People are starting to appreciate it. And we're all very excited, as uh, I'm a native Buffalonian. Mm-hmm. Not only is the city now growing, there's actually growing population. The real estate market's good. There's all kinds of investment going on. And just to cap it off, the cherry on top of the cake, the Buffalo Bills are about to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring up the Bills. If not, uh, if, if you've somehow left them out, I was going to bring them up as, as just yet another thing. Uh, in, in the city that, that is certainly on the rise. Let me ask you this. In the literally two and a half minutes that I have left with you, Jeffrey, and congratulations on that project. We look forward to seeing it in its completion. Um, Bitcoin. Um, is there a big correlation between Bitcoin and, and the S&P? And are you an investor in it at this point? What's your take? 
Um, Bitcoin is a, a proxy for speculative fervor, I think. And uh, we've seen one of the most incredible run-ups this year into the $60,000-plus price category. I was very, very bullish on Bitcoin at the beginning of 2020, and I turned neutral way too early. I turned bullish below 5,000, turned neutral at 23,000, and then it went insanely high to over that 60,000, at which point it got exhausted. Right now, the chart on Bitcoin looks pretty scary. Uh, it's dropped a lot from 60,000 down to around 30, 31 and a half thousand, I think, and uh, it looks like a massive head and shoulders top. I'm not a big believer in head and shoulders tops, but this one looks pretty convincing. And I think by, uh, you know, turning neutral at 23,000 was obviously too early, but I got a feeling you're going to be able to buy it below 23,000 again. Mm. So Bitcoin is, uh, it, it's really lost its steam, obviously, and doesn't seem to be, uh, have the support that it had. There's all kinds of crazy predictions about Bitcoin. I, I, I try to be more constant. I saw one guy said, that was worth 400000 and now he says it's going to like crash or something like that. I, I, I try to be a little bit more consistent. I still think Bitcoin is highly speculative, highly volatile. Um, I, I think it's only a trading vehicle. I've never been long Bitcoin personally. I've never been short Bitcoin. It's just not for me. I, I don't have that kind of risk tolerance in my DNA where I have to get worried to pull up the quote every day to see if it's down 20%. But uh, uh, I, I would not own Bitcoin presently. I think you had an opportunity to buy it at a cheaper level. And uh, that is uh, the case, I think, of many of the speculative assets. It's interesting that you know, the stock market averages uh, are at highs, but there are many, many stocks, particularly some that were extremely strong mm -hmm. uh, going into this year, that are not really at, 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 at top. So it's less of a speculative frenzy market right now than it is more of a, a rotational market. Right. Jeffrey, um, it's always a pleasure. I always enjoy our conversations. It's nice to see you again. It's nice to uh, have this conversation for our viewers. I hope we do it again soon. You take care. All right. Take care, Scott. It's good to be with you. Yep. Good luck. You as well. That's Jeffrey Gunlock, again, the CEO of Double Line, joining us today in a halftime exclusive interview. Final trades. We're going to tweet those out for you. That's it for us. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.